Heavenly Father, thank you for this day, for your word and kindness. Bless us as we study it through Christ our Lord. Amen. Worldwide Bible Study, I'm Pastor Wolfmuller. We are studying the life of Jacob with Martin Luther. We are in Genesis 28. Here's the backstory. Uh, we'll, we'll, we will remember that uh, uh, that Jacob and um, Rebecca plotted to get the blessing from Esau, which he should have given him in the first place. Isaac should have been giving the, the blessing to Jacob to start with, but he, they had been just kind of carried along with Esauism, and they were Esau just kind of winning the day in all this stuff, and so they they just had it wrong. So even though Esau sold the birthright, Isaac wasn't going to bless him with it. Jacob and Rebekah arranged so that he gets the blessing, and then uh, and then Esau says, "Well, okay, I'm going to kill him." So to avoid that murder, that fratricide, that's what it is. Uh, to avoid that, uh, Rebecca makes plans for Jacob to go into exile. So his first act as king is to hit the road. And we're going to have more on that uh, in a little bit. And But Rebecca goes to Isaac and says, instead of saying, hey, we got to send him away so that Esau doesn't murder him, he says, we got to send him away so he can get married to not Hittite women because these Hittite women are driving me nuts. Uh, they were such a affliction for Rebecca. Okay, so that's happened. Uh, so J Isaac comes to Jacob and blessed him and charged him and says, you shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father. Take for yourself a wife there from the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. So uh, so, so we have it. So, uh, so and, then, and then Isaac is going to give him this blessing. May God Almighty bless you. Now, we'll remember that he already had the blessing that he received from him. Um, so this is more like a prayer, a blessing. And so we'll, we'll have a discussion about that uh, right here. So let's, let's just kept, catch up the very, so this is Luther's sort of final commentary on, um, on this text here. He's just going to give sort of the final word on, uh, on marriage. He says, on the other hand, those who shrink from marriage altogether, either under the pretext of sanctity, this is the monkery, I'm too holy to be married, and so forth, or to be able to live with greater freedom. That's the Epicurean, hey, I, I'm going I'm to I'm be my own whatever. These should be exhorted to take up this very saintly kind of life, lest they pollute themselves with unmentionable lusts that are customary in the establishments of the clergy and the cardinals. Ah, uh-huh. This is one of those little hints that we get every now and again about how bad things were according to the sixth commandment, you shall not commit adultery, how bad they were in the monasteries. I mean, it was just a mess. Luther will say, Melanchthon will say, all these Lutherans uh, uh, the who say, I have... Uh, um, what um, the, uh, you can't even mention the things that happen in the monastery. They're just and and we see and we see what's going on. Uh, uh, the when you when you are avoiding marriage, uh, then you're just and, and especially for your own lust or secure or or your own kind of pleasure or whatever. 
then everything kind of be, just becomes a disaster. So, okay. So Luther says, look, you should marry a wife in the name of the Lord. If you cannot become, and, and, and this is this sort of general practice. If you don't have the gift of chastity, you should marry. If you can't become rich, you should be content with daily food. If you cannot be a king and Lord, be a servant. Believe in God, wait for eternal life in this wretched and unhappy life, which does not last forever, but is very brief. For even if you live to be a hundred, what is such a brief span of time compared with eternity? We Christians know that another better life remains, a life which we wait for and for which we must always have regard. In other words, our mind is on the life to come. And that gives us patience to endure this very brief life. I remember uh, a couple of years ago, <clears throat> I tried to do the P90X. I don't know if you guys know about that. That's where, uh, that's the video where the guy bosses you around. You got to do all the exercises and everything. And one of the lines in there, he says, you can do anything for 30 seconds. Now, I don't think that's true, actually. But this is the idea is that when you're worn out, you, you just, if you say, okay, you got 30 seconds. This is what happens when Carrie and I go to the gym too. You got a 30 second all out. Now, if someone said, okay, you've got to run a 20 minute all out. It's not going to be an all out, but if it's short, then you can sprint to the finish. And this is Luther says, look, we, we sprint to the, to the finish. It's, it's pretty amazing. Now there's something here. And this has come up, I think in four or five different places, just this week where where there was a conversation about what do you expect in life? And one of the big problems that we have in our own culture, in our own time, is that we expect this life to be pretty easy. We expect this life to be simple. We expect this life to be full of pleasure. And that actually, you know, it's one of the most dangerous things is is false expectations, you know, like when you, when you grab the glass of water and then you drink a big sip of flat Sprite, oh, blah. now if you knew what it was, it's no problem. But if you're expecting one thing and you get something else, it's just a shock to the system. And, and what, so what do we expect in life? I, I was thinking about this because I, I was kind of laughing at how, uh, how goofy or how 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 uh, uh, not not goofy how how negative Luther is on this life, but I thought you know that's actually pretty helpful. If we know that it's going to be tough, if we know that it's going to be full of trouble, if we know that it's going to be uh, really difficult, then we're sort of ready for it. It's like when you're standing in the ocean and you see the wave coming, and so you brace yourself this this is bracing us for life believe in god wait for eternal life in this wretched and unhappy life what do you expect it doesn't last, for, last forever we christians know that another better life remains and because in the meantime this body of ours does not live chastely and contentedly we should by all means endure the laws and thorns and thistles of marriage we should rejoice that God regards us with kindness and protects us in these miseries. For it is pleasing to God that you toil and sweat among the thorns of marriage. So this is, you know, marriage in the garden would not have had thorns. But after the fall, there's all sorts of difficulties. Let his grace be sufficient for you. 
Do not let the difficulties deter you. Consider the toils and troubles of the very saintly patriarchs, and you will see what great troubles Jacob alone endured in marriage. So there's difficulties to endure. Difficulties from below, difficulties from below, above, difficulties because we're sinners, and the closer that sinners live together, uh, the more difficult it is. But this is how the Lord has ordained it, and so we rejoice in it. And now we get to verse 3. Here And this is... um. Uh, Jacob's bless, uh, sorry, Isaac's blessing of Jacob. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may be a company of peoples. May He give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your descendants with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojourners, which God gave to Abraham. I love one of my favorite parts of the weddings ceremony. I should have pulled up the wedding liturgy. One of my favorite parts of the wedding liturgy is at the very end where the pastor, the couple is kneeling for the prayers and the pastor pronounces them husband and wife, says a prayer for them, then turns around and puts his hands on the, on the bride and groom and says, may the Lord give you the blessing that he gave to Adam and Eve in the garden that you may, may be pleasing to him and so forth. And here the blessing that um, uh, uh, is, is just like that. But notice the blessing is not the blessing of, of Adam and Eve. The blessing that Isaac is giving to Jacob and, uh, well, just to Jacob, because there's no wife yet, is the blessing of Abraham. Now, what's that blessing of Abraham have to do with? That's the blessing of the seed. And remember, this seed promise is what we're is really what we're tracking all the way through. It started in Genesis uh, in Genesis 3. Uh, verse 15, and then it goes down to 12 with Abraham, and then it goes down to Isaac, who's speaking here, and now to Jacob. So that this blessing of the this blessing of the seed is being passed down from generation to generation. So I Abraham, so and here's how it goes, by the way. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, then Judah, not Joseph, who we might expect, but Judah. And then it skips all the way from Judah until David. And David is the last time that we hear the seed promise. So we have the seed promise. How many people is this? Um, Adam and Eve. Uh, okay, Seth. Noah. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David. So there's eight people who are given that seed promise and that promise is the promise of the messiah that he may give you the blessing of abraham and your descendants with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings which god gave to abraham so there's the land promise uh there's the descendant promise thus isaac sent jacob away and went to Padan aram to laban the son of bethuel the aramean the brother of rebecca jacob and esau's mother so off he goes to his uncle's place. Now, uh, notice here that there's the three promises of the promise to Abraham, and they're always in the background, and they're always good for us to remember. And I'm going to write them here if I can make my thing right. Number one, you have the promise of the seed uh, of the crowd. Uh, well, let's just say number one is the promise of the seed of the seed. That's of the Messiah, Jesus. And then you have the promise of the family, the descendants. 
And then you have the promise of the land. And it's good for us to remember that these two last promises, the family promise and the land promise, are both serving the seed promise. They're both pointing to Jesus. There's the danger. Uh, there was danger for Israel, according to the flesh. There's danger for the family and danger for the people in thinking that the promise was for them, that they were the apple of God's eye rather than Jesus being the apple of God's eye, and that the love of God flows in this direction. It's through the seed to the family and to the land. And when the family and the land set themselves against the seed, that's going to get ugly. So that in the New Testament, in the Old Testament too, remember, but, but think about, for example, um, John chapter 8, where the people say, we're the children of Abraham. We, we've never been slaves to anyone. They think that, that I mean, they forget that this is the main thing. And they're thinking only of these two. That there's a great danger there. Okay, so that that goes back to to Abraham. Okay, so here, uh, so here, uh, Isaac blesses Jacob. Um, Luther's going to talk about here, and this is great. The difference between the blessing and the the wish, and he's going to use the language of of preaching and prayer to explain the difference, because before when uh, when Jacob came to Isaac with the hairy, with the goat hair on his arm and with the priestly vestments and all this sort of stuff, he received the blessing. That was for sure. And now he's receiving more like a commendation, a, a lighter blessing, a non-official blessing, if you, if you would take it that way. So above Isaac gave blessing to his son, Jacob. These he repeats in this passage with a wish. See, so, so you see that Luther's contrasting this the blessing with a wish. But the blessing, as we have so pointed out above, is the very thing that's handed over and given. So the contrast, so the, the example, baptism is handed over to me now. Forgiveness of sins is handed over. For I do not hope for the remission of sins, but I have it in faith. I do not believe that Christ is going to suffer for me. No, through faith, I am sure that he has suffered for my sins and risen for the sake of my righteousness. So, so you see that what we're what Luther's working on is the difference between um, hope and, and having, belief and surety. I think this is an interesting thing to consider. As, as I've been learning sign language, one of the, like the difference between hope versus expect, or the biblical idea of hope is, I hope or I hope. I hope it doesn't get too hot today. I hope for the resurrection of the dead. The diff that's a difference. Luther says, this is not, the forgiveness of sins is not, I hope I'm forgiven. I am forgiven. I hope I'm forgiven. I, I cling to the forgiveness of sins. See the difference? So that the blessing delivers the thing. You don't have to wonder about it. You got it. You, it's yours. It belongs to you. No, through faith, I am sure that he has suffered for my sins and risen for the sake of my righteousness. Therefore, it is not a, a mere prayer or wish. It is that through by which through the power of the keys, I hand over to you now the remission of sins 
the grace and favor of God, in order that you may be able to conclude with certainty that you have God who is well pleased with you. This I hand over to you as a sure possession. Thus the church has the favor and goodwill of the divine majesty of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit forthwith of Christ and the angels who give their congratulations and of all creatures who applaud and wait for uh, uh, its redemption. As is stated, Romans 8, all creation groans waiting. So you see the difference is like, you know, we wish people, hey, be well, do well, versus I forgive you all your sins. And these are, those are two very different things happening there. A blessing is a far different matter from a wish. Yet a wish is added in this passage. May God bless you, that is, make you fruitful, etc., says Isaac. Above the blessing has been spoken, here the prayer is added. For it's often been stated that ever since the beginning of the world, there are and always have been two priestly offices. If you're taking notes, this is a good place. The one is teaching which takes place in the sermon or an absolution in which I hand over the grace of God confirmed by the blood of Christ. The other is praying for oneself and others, which usually takes place after the sermon. We have the prayer of the church after the preaching. It's great. And Luther's pointing out that these two priestly offices, this is, this is how we roll. Remember that Luther's lecturing at the seminary to guys who are going to be pastors. And he says, you got two, you're going to look two things. You're going to preach and you're going to pray. A good Our Father should always follow a good sermon, for one should pray for the increase of faith in order that we may grow in the blessing, lest the devil take it from us. Therefore, both should be done, teaching and praying, for these are the two priestly offices, to hear God speaking and to speak with God, who hears us, to descend and to ascend. You see, what's the descending is the preaching, the ascending is the prayer. Through the blessing, through the preaching, and through the administration of the sacraments, God descends and speaks with me. There I hear. On the other hand, I ascend and speak into the ears of God who hears my prayer. It's fantastic. A question coming in the Oh, what's going on here? Um, this question about the covenant, I want to take up in the chat afterwards. Uh, hear from David. I don't know. These are also, I think, afterwards, let's see. The, here's a question. Are the readings considered part of the teaching? Yeah, absolutely. Service the word, service the blood. So the teaching, reading and teaching, and then the administration and prayers. Um, here's a question that says, regarding forgiveness of sins in the sacrament, I've always wondered why do we observe baptism once, but the Lord's Supper multiple times? few ideas, but I'd love to hear the explanation. Probably the best way to think of this is that baptism just as the sign that the Lord has given us is connected to birth and the supper is connected to eating. So you're only born one time, but you have to eat all the time. And so the different sort of ways that the Lord wants to bless us are there in those two different sacraments. It's a danger for us to think, oh, I have two sacraments or three sacraments or whatever, but to recognize that while the forgiveness of sins is the main thing in both baptism and the Lord's supper, that they have their own uniquenesses. In fact, the word sacrament is not necessarily a biblical word. I mean, it's the Latin translation of the word for mysterium in the Greek, mystery. But it's 
so I suppose it's a Latinized word for mystery, but but the idea of the sacraments is those uh, physical rites to which the Lord has attached the promise of forgiveness. That's a theological construct, and it's helpful, but we want to make sure that we let baptism be baptism and the, and the supper be the supper. Uh, so that's good. Uh, let's see. I want to keep going. Uh, one should note the special name for God in this place. It is Shaddai. And that's from Shab. Shaddai means place. Shad means, as Luther's going to talk about here, breast or teat, because thinking not necessarily of a of a woman, but of just of a like a uh, also an animal, a mom, a cow or a sow or something like this. That's for nursing. God considers it befitting his dignity to be called this name, El Shaddai. It agrees with the Greek term polumastos. You can kind of recognize that mastos comes into English like as a mastectomy. Uh, many-breasted, polumastos, many-breasted. He wants to be praised for nourishing and cherishing, for he cherishes all creatures. Now, note, note this. It's not just he's not only the creator but he's also the sustainer and the nourisher. This stands against all forms of uh, deism. You know this? And this deism is really in the, especially like in the beginning of the United States and the establishment of it. And it still floats around this idea that the Lord is like the clockmaker, and he wound up the clock and then he just lets it go. He's like, you know, when I was growing up, me and my brothers used to love to just roll things down the hill that was our like we had this i don't know we had this ring this metal ring that was like part of a firewood holder and it must have broken off and so we would roll this all and so, so we had a hill in the, and we'd roll it down the hill and it would roll out into the street it's an amazing thing that it didn't just or i remember one time we were playing the game where we were on the side of the hill and we would just roll rocks down the hill to watch them roll and one person would have to go and jump over the rocks and Ended up breaking a thumb of a friend that way. Uh, he should have jumped higher. But but we just would, you know, this is how we like to think of God is he just sort of, he pushes the universe, poof, and it just rolls. And, and, and Luther won't let it stand. He says, no, look, it's not just that God created everything. It's that he nourishes it. He continues to sustain it. You see that? You see that? And you see the difference? So even in the large catechism, I believe that God has created me and all creatures that he has given me. Creation is not a way back then kind of thing. It's, it, it's also now. So the, so um, he employed the same name when he spoke to Abraham. I'm God almighty. El Shaddai. I cause all things to grow, increase, live, and be nourished that the Lord is involved in all of it. Not distant, but right now sunk into the, all of this. So Jacob implores God, who's not only the creator, but also the nourisher and sustainer, to give his son the land of his sojourning. It's your land, he wants to say, but you're a guest and a stranger in it. Someone else has possession of it. The God promised it to Abraham. He promised it to Isaac. He promised it to Jacob. Who's in charge now? Well, Esau sort of. But even Esau is not, I mean, he's, he's a king amongst other kings in the land. So the people who, to whom the Lord promised it do not yet possess it. 
But that's how it goes, right? That's that's the whole point of Hebrews 11. They don't have the possession of the land. This, not having possession of the land that was promised, was surely burdensome and difficult for Isaac, for one, also for Jacob. For us, however, it would be altogether intolerable if I had my own house and someone else lived in it. <laughs> Can you imagine? I, a guest, would be compelled to buy bread, wine, and all the necessities with my own money in order to nourish and clothe that stranger. Therefore, the faith of the very saintly patriarchs was great. In other words, you, you, it's your house, but someone's living in it, and you're outside working to stock the pantry, and someone else is eating all your stuff. Could you imagine? Get out of my house, we would say. But here, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they all are strangers. And so are we, really. I mean, remember how Paul says it in, in 1 Corinthians? I, this is an amazing verse. All things are yours. Where, where, remember this? Uh, where does he say that? All things, Is it chapter 2? I thought it was chapter 1. Whether Paul or Apollos or the present or the... How come I can't find it? There it is. Who's Apollos? Where? where there's going to be one. I right hear. All right. Chapter three. Wow. I was way off. Let no one boast in men for all. Look at what Paul says here. All things are yours. All things are yours. Who is this yours that Paul is talking to? It's you, you. All things are yours. Mine too. I mean, this is the Christian. All things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. That, that is an amazing thing. That's this pilgrim life, is that the Lord has given us all things. The world belongs to the Christians. Life and death belong to the Christians. Present and future belong to the Christians. And we belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. That's how that goes. But we don't see it. We wander as pilgrims. Huh? So we... Uh, <clears throat> uh, Isaac, so therefore the very... Uh, the very saintly patriarch, therefore the faith of the very saintly patriarchs was great. And these words of Isaac, which are filled with faith, bear witness to this. And they undoubtedly understood that the eternal and spiritual promises were included in these physical promises of the land of Cana. Accordingly, they hoped for another fatherland. <clears throat> Hebrews 11. Since the temporal blessings are promised and yet given to others. So far, enough has been said about the faith and promise of the blessings, likewise about marriage. So look at this. The temporal blessings are promised and yet are given to others. Now, this theme, I mean, if, if in a way, this is the whole theme of the whole thing. The, the, the Lord makes a promise, and then you have to wait. In fact, it's not only that you have to wait. It's the Lord makes a promise, 
And then it seems like he fights against that promise. He gives, he gives Abraham the promise, in your seed, all the nations are going to be blessed. And then they don't have any babies. And then they have Isaac. And then he says, the Lord says to Abraham, now go and kill Isaac. So you have the promise, and then you have the Lord fighting against the promise. The Lord gives the promise. The older will serve the younger. The whole life, the, the younger serving the older. His whole life. Even though the older sells the birthright to the younger. Even though then, finally at last, 77 years old, the younger gets the blessing from the father. And instead of the older serving the younger, the older tries to murder the younger. So the, the younger has to leave town and go into exile. So this is this is how the Lord works. Want to see it? I think Luther's going to give us a good summary here. So the next six verses, the next four verses, starting with verse six, Esau saw, and so we're kind of so Jacob leaves. Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Paddan Aram to take a wife from there, and that he had blessed him. He, uh, as he blessed him, he charged him, "You shall not marry one of the Canaanite women," and that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and had gone to Paddan Aram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, something he probably should have noticed about 40 years ago, Esau went to Ishmael and took to wife, beside the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebioth. So Esau sees, is watching all of this. He sees Jacob getting the blessing now, the, the, the prayer that he'd go and find a wife amongst his relatives and esau says well i'm not making my dad happy my mom's upset with this maybe i'll go find a bride so he goes over to ishmael who would be remember his uncle and marries his cousin to try to please his parents it seems that esau who was furious becomes a little milder here back to luther after he sees his brother jacob has withdrawn from the father's house for he thought i have enough provided i remain in the house and in possession that brother of mine who has been blessed is gone, has left the blessing behind. He thinks it was only an accidental blessing with which his father blessed him in order that he might have a small portion uh, with which to sustain himself in his exile and sojourn. So Luther's wrestling with how it could be that Esau can change his attitude so quickly. And he says, ah, it's not, you know, I sold the birthright. I still had it. He gave the blessing. I still have it. Jacob's leaving town. They, they just gave him what he needs to just get out of town. I still have everything. Possession is nine-tenths of the law. Maybe I don't need to rage and murder him. It's all going to be fine. It was mostly pleasing to him that Jacob did not resist his parents, but obeyed so readily and content with little withdrew into exile. Esau says, he could have said, he could have urged his father to bestow a greater blessing on him. Just as I, by urging and insisting, have wrestled from him permission to remain in the house now. But my father, my mother, and my brother Jacob are simple folk. My parents send their son into exile. The son's completely willing to obey. He trembles at my threats and wrath. Therefore, in fact, you see, Esau thinks that he's basically still in charge because his anger is what's driving Jacob away. Therefore, he wisely considers his own interests by fleeing. This is the mind of Esau as Luther's getting into it. For I am the master and the ruler. Up to this time, Jacob has always been the servant. This is a as Luther says. This is certainly an ex excellent example of godless people who are want to flatter and console themselves, even with 
Holy Scripture, in spite of the fact that it's completely opposed to them, just as godly and God-fearing people, on the other hand, turn statements and words spoken to them and for their life and comfort around and receive them as though they had been pronounced for their perdition. It's a weird, um, it's just a weird coincidence in life that the hard-hearted who should be hearing the law of God only hear the gospel and comfort themselves, whereas the tender-hearted who need to hear the gospel and the peace of God can only hear the law. So that so that the law and the gospel is constantly confused. A godly man fears the wrath of God when he should hope for mercy. Godless people, on the other hand, distort the passages dealing with God's mercy and grace and refer them to themselves. Thus the papists and the Turks dream that they alone are the beloved and accepted children of God. They dream that they're sitting on the lap of God the Father. And they want the examples of the punishments and the threats to be far removed from them. But we fear these and think that they pertain to our perdition, although God does not want to terrify us, but wants to console, strengthen, and gladden us. This is true. And I, in just in pastoral care, I see this all the time. <clears throat> Thus Esau saw, and saw with special pleasure, that his parents sent Jacob away out of fear of their angry son's wrath. Nothing more agreeable could have happened to him. You see, Esau is so happy. <laughs> Send him away. You tried to bless him, didn't work. Look at my armies. Send him away. Therefore, he in turn wants to do his father a favor and to gratify him, lest he seem to be ungrateful and disobedient towards his parents. For when he hears that his Hittite wife displeases his father, he thinks, behold, I'll marry one woman who will please my father. And he goes to his paternal uncle Ishmael and marries Ishmael's daughter. Scripture does not point out whether that hypocrisy and deceit pleased his father or not. I do not think so. For Isaac did not believe that the blessing was attached to Esau, but knew that it was owed to Jacob. So you see there, so Esau says, here the, they want to give the blessing to Jacob, and maybe it's just because they see my family and they see my unbelieving wives and children. And so maybe if he's out of the town, out of the way, and I'll get myself a family wife, then they'll be happy with me. And then they'll quit all this nonsense about Jacob getting the blessing. Uh, uh, Isaac saw that whatever uh, that that whatever what's uh, Esau was doing, he was doing hypocritically and deceitfully. This is a striking and excellent example of a godless men and hypocrites who flourish in this life and have everything in abundance. They get their kingdoms and wealth of the world with glory and pomp, just as the bishops do. But in the end, it'll be seen who is calling the tune. Okay. Now here, uh, uh, Luther is going to give us a summary, basically, of of everything that's happened so far. Because he sees at this point uh, here, Jacob's vow at Bethel, he sees a, a, a change in the structure of Genesis. And we go now into the fifth book of Genesis. I can't remember my outline, if I have that here or not as well. But Luther's going to kind of run through a summary, a two-paragraph summary 
up to what we've seen so far. So we'll roll through that. And then I think that'd probably actually be a, a good place to stop. So a couple more paragraphs and then we'll take, because there's a lot of questions happening and, and I want to get to those as well. So up to this point, Moses has related the history of Isaac and Rebecca in a few words. He's told about the very grievous trials and struggles with both, with which both endured with great courage at home and abroad in the word and in faith. So, so far we've been studying really Isaac and Rebecca, and it's going to switch now to the life of Jacob. For after Isaac had received the promise about the multiplication of his descendants, he had to live with a sterile wife for 20 whole years. But when her prayer is heard, she becomes pregnant and gives birth to twins, yet not without trial and danger to her life. Later, after the birth of the children, new abodes must be sought because of the famine. It's necessary to sojourn with the children and the household among the Philistines. Here, Rebecca's chastity is endangered. Then the quarrels and the enmity of the shepherds, yes, even of the king himself, must also be born. But amid all this, the saintly people are saintly people are buoyed up and sustained by the word and promise. And the hearts of the king and the adversaries are also placated and reconciled again. Finally, however, when they were now rid of the external trials, a domestic cross is added because of the wickedness and obstinacy of their son Esau and their two daughters-in-law who, as we have heard, plagued their aged parents very harshly. And Rebecca especially was affected more seriously by this, since in addition she was concerned lest the primogenitor, the, the firstborn, and the blessing be transferred to Esau, contrary to the meaning of the divine oracle. Remember, the older will serve the younger. This is what the father himself was trying to bring about, and Esau was proudly arrogating to himself. But here the wonderfully divined power of the word shines forth in the promise. The word, which had to remain immovable and firm, even though Isaac himself resisted on account of his mistaken notion. Therefore, he's beautifully deceived by the counsel and cunning of Rebekah. Look at that. Beautifully deceived, Luther says. Because, why? Because Rebekah is serving the promise. Uh, Rebecca's trying to make the will of God happen, which Jacob is and uh, uh, Isaac is resisting, excuse me, who retain the true meaning of the promise. Contrary, therefore, to every expectation and unknowingly, he confers the blessing on Jacob to whom it was owed. But Esau lost the blessing and paid a fitting penalty for his godlessness and his contempt. The fact that these examples of the extraordinary struggles and of the troubles with which the whole life of the patriarch abounded occur in the church is profitable. Why? They inflame the hearts of the godly to similar endurance, expectation, faith, and invocation in adversity. So that these stories should uh, enliven our own endurance. It should inflame the heart. The heart should, and, and I think, and I found this, this is what Luther does here for us with Jacob with Rebecca and Isaac, it's what the it's what the study of the martyrs I think has done to me. Is you you simply see people who are courageous, courageous Christians, and you think, okay, okay, ah, uh, okay. There you go. So that's the end. And then now the history of the patriarch Jacob follows. So really, the life of Jacob Luther sees is starting now as he leaves the house. He goes to Bethel. He has the vision, the beautiful vision of the stairway to heaven and all of this. All right. So let's stop it there.
And I'm just going to check the chat here to make sure that we don't need to get in. Uh, I hear, see here, Matt said, this is the hardest thing for me as a Christian to see unbelievers and evildoers be successful and have possessions. While Christians are supposed to be refraining from lust of the flesh and content with waiting for eternal life, which is infinitely better reward than anything else, it's hard because my flesh desires these things and I get jealous of the ungodly. That's also, that's how the devil. So, yes, we are at, in fact, I'm just looking, this comes up. I'm just looking at uh, what's coming in the next couple of pages here. The the uh, no, we better not look too far. The 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 flesh and the spirit are at war with one another, and it is wearisome this war. And the devil just tempts us to oh, just give up the fight, just become Epicurean, just just scratch the itch. Just do what you want. In fact, the devil presents that uh, that doing what you want as the as freedom, as opposed to the constraining, suffocating bondage of the commandments. But it's a it's it's an illusion. And probably from above and behind and in front, the Lord attacks that illusion. From above, he says, look, you belong to me and I am life. From behind, he gives us the, um, uh, the he tells us where we come from. Life comes not from following after your own desires, but from, from hearing the word. But, and in front, he tells us where it leads. That path leads to death. So Solomon tried it, right? He said, okay. I'm going to I'm going to make myself happy. I'm going to give myself everything I want. I'm going to I'm going to pursue I'm going to pursue all my desires and he's empty. It's like the prodigal son, remember? Give me half the inheritance. I'm going to go live how I want to live and you end up in the trough. So so uh, so okay. So so you get two pictures of the prodigal son. And the first is a pretty good picture. That first day when he's got all the money and the new shoes and the new backpack and all the imaginations of going to Las Vegas and all the joy of being free from the father's constraints, you got that picture and our flesh is, we like, oh, hey, that looks pretty good. But just fast forward two months and the same guy has bags under his eyes and is, and he's, you can see his ribs and he just wants to to grab the pod from the mouth of the pig and get a little bite. The same guy, same situation. And one follows the other. So we see that happen and we want that, but we forget that it leads to this, to, em to emptiness. That the stomach cannot be filled. Like the ocean, so the stomach and the mind and the eyes of man cannot be satisfied of human beings. So to chase after lust is to devour the wind and to destroy ourselves. But it's so the Lord is reminding us of that because it's it's hard. But the his his way is actually good. The law is good. Okay. Good questions. All right. I see some more chat, so we'll do that after we um close out here. But let's say a, a quick prayer. Well, Lord, we give you thanks for the examples of the saints that have gone before us, especially Isaac, especially Rebecca and Jacob. 
their faithfulness to your promise, their willing willingness to endure suffering, uh, to cling to the promise in spite of everything that they see around them. Give us that same faith and confidence that we would know your forgiveness and kindness and love in this life as we wait for the joys of the life to come. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.